The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and it is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Tammy. So before we get to the sermon, I just want to say again what a, what a privilege and honor it is to serve alongside Pastor Charles McGowan, Dr. Charles McGowan. Uh, those of you who have come uh, in recent years uh, may not know that everything that I get to do and the current Christ Prez team gets to do is on this man's back. Uh, this sanctuary was built under Charles' leadership. Uh, this campus was developed under his leadership. And Uh, This body of believers was developed uh, uh, over between 10 and 20 years. Was it about, was it 15 years-ish of faithful ministry? Charles is the longest tenured senior pastor of Christ Prez, and uh, it's just such a thrill to to have the honor of of you being a pastor emeritus among us and still a very active part of our community and faithful servant to the city of Nashville and across the nation. He's uh, he's at work uh, doing great things, matching churches with pastors and and helping churches get healthy. So uh, thank you again, Charles. We're so grateful for you. And, uh, and now I get to turn us to this, um, this passage uh, with a sermon that I was uh, uh, told after the early service um, caused me to move from preaching to meddling. And so I'm going to meddle a little bit uh, because Jesus meddles a good bit with his beloved bride in this letter to the church at Sardis, which is a wake-up call. It's like Jesus putting smelling salts uh, under the nose of an unconscious church. And, uh, you know, there are so many disciplines in life, aren't there, where if you're going to experience success, you have to attend to every detail. You know, we're in Music City, right? Any guitarist would tell you that to have every string except one of the six strings on a guitar perfectly tuned, but if, you, if, you, if you're just slightly sharp or slightly flat on one of those strings, it's going to mess up every chord. It will mess up the entire sound. You have to be precise. The same types of things would be said by a mechanic. If, if, if just one gasket is loose, it, 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 it could leak fluid to the, to, to the point where it ruins the engine of the vehicle. 
If you're caring for a lawn, uh, maybe you've faithfully fertilized and aerated and weeded and seeded, but if you leave that out that one detail of applying water regularly to the lawn, it's going to be a dead pile of grass. If you're a surgeon and you do everything 100% right, everything you learned in medical school, everything you learned in residency, everything you learned through your years of experience, but you forget to put your gloves on, you forget to sanitize, you will cause an infection and possibly uh, cause death of your patient. If you're a preacher and you emphasize truth but not grace, people go home feeling burdened and not set free. If you emphasize grace but not truth, people go home with a false sense of security. You have to be precise. The church at Sardis was doing a lot of things well. The optics were really good. They had a reputation, it says, for being alive. They were growing, people getting baptized, a swirl of activity and programs, and Jesus says, you're dying. You're dying because you're missing some critical details. In verse 2, he says, I know your works. I know you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Wake up. So, so twice in its history, the city of Sardis had been sacked by enemies from another territory. The first was in 547 BC. That's when King Cyrus's Persia uh, invaded Sardis and conquered. And then later in 214 BC, Antiochus III came in and did the same. And in both situations, the, the reason why the enemy succeeded with its invasion was that the watchmen had fallen asleep, that the watchmen were not paying attention and they weren't awake and so they failed to detect the enemy sneaking up on them. And so there are a couple of enemies that we're going to examine from our text today that can sneak up on well-meaning Christians who have a reputation for being alive. Those two enemies are First, the conservative evangelical enemy, which is conversion without activism. And the second is the mainline liberal enemy, which is activism without conversion. We have to look out for those two enemies sneaking up on us. So conservative evangelical problem, conversion without activism. Jesus says, I've not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. This is an echo of James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote a letter to the first century Jerusalem church. The theme of that letter is faith without works is dead. The primary application of that letter is works are equated with giving special attention to the poor and needy among you, to the weak and the vulnerable. Faith without works, sound theology and Bible reading and church going, without love and special attention given to the least of these, is dead. It's dead. John the beloved disciple, a more tender-hearted guy, probably Jesus' best friend while he walked on earth, said similar things. In his first epistle, he said, if you see somebody in need and you turn your heart away from that need, how can the love of God possibly 
abide in you. That that same God who lavished his mercy on you, that same God who regarded your helpless estate and shed his own blood for your soul, how could you possibly look at somebody right in front of you in need and turn your heart and your eyes in another direction? Such a disorienting thought. Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who has a reputation for being alive. Not everyone whose spiritual optics are good will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say the one who preaches or the one who acknowledges the will of my Father in heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Take Judas, for example. Judas spent three solid years with Jesus and the other disciples. His life appeared on the outside from an optics point of view to be so congruent with the other disciples that when Jesus announced at the Last Supper, one of you is going to betray me, nobody there knew who it was going to be. Nobody said, oh, it's clearly going to be Judas. Clearly going to be Judas. Nobody said that. Everybody was like, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Is it him? Who is it? Judas was the treasurer. He's the one who carried the money bag for the disciples. He preached the gospel and healed the sick alongside the other disciples when they went out on their missionary journeys and endeavors. Judas preached on behalf of the poor. When a woman poured out a lavish gift of expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus, it says that Judas got really angry He got indignant and he said, all this waste, this expensive perfume, it it should have been sold and and given to the poor. The problem with Judas is, while he spoke on behalf of the poor, he did nothing remarkable for the poor. In fact, he was known, it says, to pickpocket the contributions every now and then when nobody was looking. Apparently somebody was looking because somebody wrote that he pickpocketed the contributions. It's a classic form of what you could call slacktivism. You see this on social media. A lot of outrage about the injustices in the world, but I'm not doing a stinking thing for the things that I'm so irate about. I count my outrage as my faithfulness to God, even though I'm doing nothing about the things that I'm outraged about. Slacktivism. Micah 6.8 puts it this way, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Charles McGowan named this in his prayer a few moments ago, where we're always at risk of being indifferent about justice. And about mercy. You know, Brian Stevenson is a, a well-known attorney. He's a professor at uh, the law school at New York University, and he's come out recently with a book called Just Mercy, and in that book he says this, I have come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to fairness, cannot be measured merely by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character 
is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. The second command is just like the first, Jesus said. You say you love God? Love your neighbor. You can't separate the two. They're not two separate commands. They're two sides of the same coin. They're one and the same. One leads to the other. And if one doesn't lead to the other, you don't have it in the first place. You never did. You know, this was Dr. King's chief frustration as he wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail. It was the silence of white ministers about the injustices that were being perpetrated against people of color. And the white ministers, while in private, would give lip service to how upset they were about the injustices and the lack of civil rights, would not go public with their concerns because of fear of losing place, position, power, and privilege. This Sardis letter you'll notice a glaring absence of something that seems to be present in almost all the other letters. No mention here of persecution. No mention here of opposition. No mention here of them stirring the pot in any way, shape, or form as a people of grace and truth. They were non-offensive, nominal, nice, and non-Christian. N.T. Wright says, this is a church quietly drowning in its own inoffensiveness, unable to believe that its reputation for being alive is no longer deserved. And so Jesus says, wake up. Your works are incomplete. They're incomplete. They're lacking. So one of the things that we excel at in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition, which is the tradition that we come from at Christ Pres, is the strength of our sound theology, of our careful, precise study of Scripture, and, and our communication through volumes and volumes and volumes of writings of accurate doctrine. Here's the problem. If that's all we have we're just devils. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Even the demons believe everything that the Bible says and shudder. And they shudder. Why? Because they're not surrendered to what they say they believe. Faith without works is dead. We are of the tradition of the great Martin Luther and the great John Calvin, both of whom were champions of the five solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, sola fide, by faith alone, sola Christos, in Christ alone, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. We are heirs of that heritage. We are heirs of, 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 of the great doctrines of justification by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ that Luther rediscovered and reintroduced to the world of the church in the 1500s. Luther said, 
We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Calvin as well said, justice is a universal rule that applies to everyone. It means standing against and resisting evil, whatever is necessary to relieve the poor and to relieve afflicted people. It's the Good Samaritan parable where where Jesus gives us a picture of what it means to take care of somebody in a helpless condition. And then he looks at the crowds and he says, now you go and do likewise. He doesn't say go and preach likewise. He doesn't say go affirm this story likewise. He says go and do likewise. The sheep and the goats, whatever you do or whatever you do not do for the least of these, you either do or do not do for me. You know, the Apostle Paul, who you know, gave us all these wonderful, glorious doctrines that were rediscovered and repopularized by Luther and Calvin and the likes, also said in, in the midst of, of his letters, I am eager everywhere I go to preach the gospel, to also remember the poor, because one is a necessary byproduct of another. While good works are never a cause and never a contribution to salvation, they are always a byproduct of a heart that's been transformed by the one who loved us and gave himself for us. You know, Rich Mullins put it this way, faith without works, it's like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. So if you ever wonder why Christ Pres Church, from, from where we are, you know, across the street from the steeplechase, the geographical hub of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Nashville, if you ever wonder why we put so much of our time, of our energy, of our conversation, of the literature that we put out around things like care for the vulnerable, presence for the bereaved, resourcing for those who need counseling and pastoring, championing things like racial mercy and justice and reconciliation, championing things like the alien and the stranger and the refugee, showing up in the prisons, supporting addicts in their recovery, supporting families involved in foster care and adoption, providing housing for those who cannot afford housing, fighting against the sex trade, and helping beaten down prostitutes recover and re-enter a path that could lead to potential flourishing, addressing the deepest spiritual needs, deploying nearly 40% of our resources out, largely toward these endeavors, it's because we want to stay awake. It's because we know that if we're susceptible to anything, it is, it is that we are susceptible to leaning on our sound doctrine and leaning on our large crowds and leaning on almost 100 people joining our church every quarter. Leaning on those things, having a reputation for being alive, gets you nowhere. And so we want to stay awake. And so we have the discipline of leveraging and deploying toward all the things that Christ names as his concerns. Here's the good news. These commands are not so much to individuals as they are to entire communities. And so to whatever degree you're invested in Christ Presbyterian Church, you are invested in the least of these and the poor and so on. And some of you 
that investment looks different. But it is a team sport, so to speak, to lean against the conservative evangelical problem of conversion without activism. It's like a song you can't sing and it's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine and so is the mainline liberal problem which could be described as activism without conversion. You know, James says that faith without works is dead. You can say the same thing in the reverse. Works without faith, also dead. Also dead. Social justice without Jesus is dead. Dead. Screen door on a submarine. Here is the irony about Sardis. They are found by Jesus to be lacking in good works, chiefly because they are leaning on the good works that they did have to justify themselves. Matthew 7, again, Jesus says, many are going to say to me on that last day of judgment, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, I never knew them. I know your works, Jesus says here, but he doesn't say I know you. He says, I know your works. Big whoop. You have a reputation for being alive. Hitler had a reputation for being a man of influence. You have a reputation for being alive. You're hanging your hat on your own incomplete works instead of hanging your hat entirely on the completed work of Jesus Christ who died, who has risen, and who will come again all for you, the author and perfecter of your faith, the one who began a good work in you and the one who will complete that good work in you until the day of Christ Jesus, all the way through every bit of your salvation, the conversion part, the justification part, the sanctification and growth part, the ultimate glorification and perfection part, all the work of Jesus. You participate in it, you come alongside it, you surrender to it, but it is His work in you and through you. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, not even faith is of yourself, it's a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. And you are God's workmanship, His poema, His poetry, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared ahead of time for you to do. It's a lot of mystery there. But here's, here's the takeaway for Sardis and for us. Verse 3, remember what you received and heard. He doesn't say remember what you've been commanded. He doesn't say remember how I've deployed you. He says remember what you've received and heard. That's the key to everything. That's the key to have a legitimate faith. That's the key to having legitimate works is first and foremost to remember and receive. Martin Luther called this passive righteousness. The righteousness that we have in the sight of God, or in other words, the approval that we get from God, comes from something in which we are passive. We receive the perfect work of Christ. His perfect life lived on our behalf. His substitutionary death died for our flaws and sins and failures. We're passive. He does all the acting. He does all the work to get us into the family of God, to get us safe. You know, he says in verse 4, there are still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. 
these white garments are, are, are um, you know, reminiscent of other places in Scripture where we're told about the, the robe of the righteousness of Christ that, it, that he puts on his bride. There's a symbolism to the white wedding dress. You're pure and blameless in his sight on the wedding day. You don't, you don't have to achieve that purity. You're pure and blameless in his sight at the beginning of your relationship. And, and, and nothing can, can blot or stain that dress because Christ protects it and Christ keeps it clean in the sight of God. The essence of salvation is not about what you've done for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for you. The essence of salvation is not that you've clothed yourself with good works, but you've been clothed with his good works. It's not that you have earned a reputation for yourself of being alive, but that you have been credited with his reputation, the the reputation of the one who loved you and gave himself for you before you breathed your first breath, before you were even conceived, before the foundations of the earth, it says in the book of Ephesians. It's glorious. He loved you before you were even you. You Flannery O'Connor describes the boy in, in her classic novel, Wise Blood, in this way. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. I don't have to deal with Jesus as long as I can create the illusion that I'm just a little bitty sinner instead of a big one. Then I won't have to deal with Jesus, this preacher who gets into meddling sometimes. Won't have to deal with him at all. A deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. ACDC put it a different way. It's just dirty deeds, done dirt cheap. You know, this word soiled, the great... Theologian, Knox Seminary theologian John Gerstner described that word soiled in this way. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. The works that have lulled you into the illusion of okayness. Like the Pharisee, thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, tax collectors, adulterers. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. Meanwhile, you've got Isaiah. Isaiah. Whose prophecy we will sing once again at Handel's Messiah Christmas time. Who is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament the career prophet, the career preacher, when he gets a, just a glimpse that the glory of God calls down curses on the very best, purest part of himself, his lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. If Isaiah's lips are unclean, I've got nothing else to say. Elsewhere in his prophecy, he says all of our best, most virtuous, most righteous acts when they're disconnected from being with Christ, are dirty deeds done dirt cheap. He calls them filthy rags. A literal, literal translation is a used-up menstrual cloth. That's how he regards his good works apart from the finished work of Christ. 
The Apostle Paul is the same. He's referring to his former life of righteousness and virtue. And he says it's all filthy rags. Such a sanitized, polite, nice translation that is. The literal translation would give us the S word. Don't send me a Monday morning email on that. Your issue is not with me. It's with the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit who inspired him to use that word. I love you. <laughs> At the end of his life, did you catch this? The end of his life in his ministry, he's, he's reached the height of holiness in his own life. He has progressed as far as he's going to progress in becoming like Christ until he's home with Christ. And it is that point where Paul says, present tense, I am the chief of all sinners. And then he goes into this mercy gush of a doxology, now to the king eternal. You know, the reason why God had such mercy on me, Paul says, is so that, he could be an, that I could be an example to everyone. If God could do it for me, once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, he could do it for anybody, anybody. His awareness of grace and his awareness of the gap between him and the holiness of God, they grow together. The more virtuous you are, the more sinful you feel. That's how the gospel works. The more humble you are. This is why the gospel has always been more, more attractive to prostitutes than it has been to Pharisees. Prostitutes hit bottom, they know what their need is. And so, of course, they will welcome free grace, forgiveness, passive righteousness. Of course, a prostitute will welcome that. But a Pharisee, middle class in spirit, you know how much I give to this church? You know what my attendance record is on Sundays? Do you know how much I've served? Do you know how many volunteer hours I have logged? Do you, don't, do you know that I only listen to music that is explicitly about Jesus? Do you, do you have any idea how many times I've opened the Bible with my own children? you have any idea? Filthy rags, menstrual cloth, used up. Dirty deeds, done dirt cheap. You are middle class in spirit. You're not poor in spirit, which means you're going to hell unless your heart changes. Here's the beauty of the gospel. When you have it, it will not punish you for your past. Rahab the prostitute, David the abuser of power, the adulterer, the murderer, the sexual predator are both alongside the Apostle Paul. It won't punish you for your past. It also won't lose its grip on you. I love these words. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. Peter was just as in Christ as he, when he was betraying Christ as he was when he was dying as a martyr for Christ after preaching Christ. You get that? Your identity has nothing to do with your performance today or yesterday or tomorrow. Your identity in Christ has 100% to do with your union with Christ, which cannot be threatened and it cannot be removed. It cannot be tarnished. It can't be taken away. That and that alone is what will empower you unto true good works. To not only serve the poor, but actually want to. To get energized and motivated by it. You know, Patty and I were sitting with a woman in our church just a couple of days ago. She's going through a very hard time in her life. And this, this woman 
is known to us as an exemplar of doing justly and loving mercy and giving special attention to the least of these. And her takeaway was this. I think I'm so drawn to broken people because I'm a broken person. God, have mercy on us. If we don't see ourselves as broken people, God set us free by helping us see our brokenness. Because then, and from that place, we can see that we also have a Savior who is so drawn and singularly drawn to broken that He became broken Himself so that He could begin the process of putting us back together. May it be so. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, the bread and the cup are a picture to us of how drawn to brokenness you are, so drawn to broken that you became broken yourself. The body ripped apart for you. The blood shed freely and liberally for you in remembrance of me. And just as you urged the church at Sardis to remember you, to receive what you've already done, to hear it, Father, my prayer is that we would be able to do the same thing even now in real time as we approach your table, which gives us a picture of your welcome, of your kindness, of your festive disposition towards sinners like us, saved by grace and by grace alone, and through that, made into your poetry, created in Christ Jesus for good works which you prepared ahead of time, that we should walk in them, not begrudgingly, but joyfully, because those of us who have been called to give mercy have also received it abundantly. And for this, we give you thanks. Amen.